This episode of Shameless is brought to you by Joe Mercer, premium fashion leather footwear made to last. When I was going to my health checks when I was pregnant with my son, I was asked every single visit, how many cigarettes have you had today? How much have you had to drink? What drugs have you taken? And every single time I had to say, I'm not smoking, I'm not drinking, I don't trade drugs, I'm pregnant, like every single time. And it was the same people I was talking to every single week. It's like they pull out a different checklist for Aboriginal women and instead of judging them as the person that's sitting before them, they're judged on what kind of stereotype they've perceived. Hello and welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the effervescent Ray Johnston. Ray is a Wiradjuri woman who fell pregnant as a teenager and credits that experience to changing the course of her life. Ray is the former editor of Millennial Website Junkie, is an award-winning STEM journalist and now holds the impressive role as the first ever science and technology editor for NITV. In this chat, we go everywhere from what it's like to miscarry as a teenager and then fall pregnant again within months to how she raised a child by herself from the age of 18 and how to hustle to get the career you want even when there are plenty of hurdles standing in your way. We were so energised after this chat with Ray and we just adored having her on mic with us. We cannot wait for you to hear her story. Here's Ray. Ray Johnston, welcome to Shameless in Conversation. This interview has been months in the making. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I have been waiting very patiently to be able to come (laughs) on and chat with you both. This was one of the interviews that we had booked in to come to Sydney for in about March 2020. And everybody knows what happened to flights in March 2020. And that is that flights, they were cancelled. So here we are, Ray. Here we are. Yeah, no, not a a whole lot ended up happening interstate during that month, that's for sure. But no, I've I've really been looking forward to being able to chat with you both. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so a little bit uh, a little bit starstruck right now. Oh my oh my god. <laughs> Don't make us blush. The feeling is mutual. Let's start where we always start right now. 2020 is bizarre. It's a really fucking weird year. How are you personally coping with it all? I'm kind of going through stages. I consider myself not particularly an introvert, a bit of a mix between an introvert and an extrovert. I do get a lot of energy from being around other people, especially in work situations, but I love my alone time and time to spend on, you know, just my hobbies and going through my never-ending to-do list. So having some time to just get through that has been good. However, being a, a science and technology journalist during this period of time, it's only been busier than I anticipated. I, I thought that there might be some downtime, but there hasn't really been a whole lot. It just kind of hasn't stopped. And of course, not being able to head out and see family and and go back home and being stuck in the city. And yeah, it's, it's been a lot. It's been a lot, but I'm also incredibly grateful. I have realized during this time how far I've been able to come in my life and 
you know, to be in a position where I'm completely comfortable during an event like this is such an enormous privilege. And uh, yeah, it's really highlighted that to me. We will get into a lot of that in a minute. But for the moment, what I want to ask you is what are you reading, watching and listening to that's keeping you sane at the moment? I absolutely love uh, at the moment there's a TV series I'm watching called Doom Patrol and it is a DC Comics adaptation to a TV series. It's actually got Brendan Fraser in it starring as a robot with a brain. That's basically all he is. It's it's this really surreal series with all of these characters that have developed superpowers from being in horrific and tragic accidents and it sounds just bizarre. And, and like it wouldn't be very appealing, but it's so heartfelt and the story is just incredible and I will laugh and cry in every episode. It's genuinely stunning television and I think it's really being overlooked. I am also, however, a, a huge fan of incredibly trashy television. <laughs> You're amongst <laughs> so what we love. <laughs> This is what I love about Shameless. I can come out and say this and it's all okay. I particularly love really trashy food-based reality TV. So I'm not talking about MasterChef. That's too highbrow for me. I'm talking about Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares where he's going into a fridge. I've been waiting for someone to recommend this. (laughs) This is my guilty pleasure show with my boyfriend. How good is it? How good is it every time they're just like, okay, we're going to go look in the kitchen now. We're going to look in your fridge. And they just shit they find. They pull out the most rank, old, disgusting, like chicken fillets or something and just slop it onto a plate and give it to the owner and go, you eat it. And it's just beautiful. Have you seen the episode, Ray? Have you seen the episode? I think it's called Amy's Baking Company. Amy's Baking Company, yes. Oh, it's it's a nightmare, but it's a beautiful nightmare the whole way through. And and also the aftermath of that episode is a powerful lesson in social media and what not to do because they just went to their Facebook and tore everyone who criticised them apart. It's an incredible episode. Honestly, it's masterful reality television and everyone should Zara watch. looks very lost right now. <laughs> Zara's like, what is happening? I was like prepping a question in my brain just then being like, what is Amy's baking episode? But now I can't even remember if that's what it was called. I'm just like so you need to watch it 100% Ray talk us about your childhood what were you like as a kid oh gosh I was an intensely curious child with a lot of time on my hands I I lived out in the bush uh, with my extended family and I was the only kid for a long time that's I, I lived out there with my auntie and uncle as well as my mom and dad and my cousin wasn't born until I was nine and my sister wasn't born until I was 11 so it was basically just me and the adults and whatever animals we happened to have at that time. Usually a a really good dog. I'm a big fan of dogs. So I used to read a lot. I used to read everything I could get my hands on. That's I think I found a photo of me recently just reading junk mail at my nan's house. Like if it had words on it, I would read it. And I really loved science. I loved writing. I loved drama. I loved all of these things that didn't really seem to have a link and somehow they've managed to link as an adult, which is really lovely. I was one of those kids that got pegged really early on as being like a a gifted and talented type, which 
I took in my stride when I was younger. It's just like, yeah, cool. I get to go on nerd camp and do completely useless things with my time there. I do remember I got sent on a gifted and talented camp at one of the universities and I was supposed to go and learn something really productive and come back and and teach the rest of my class and for some reason they had calligraphy as an option and I'm like yeah no that's great I'm I'm gonna learn calligraphy that's that's the skill I'm gonna do so I've come back to my primary school I think I was in year four and my teacher's gone great so what did you learn and it wasn't like robotics or or anything that yeah, it was of any perceivable value. And I was like, look what I can do. And I just like whipped out this pen and started this beautiful <laughs> lettering. <laughs> but it turned, out writing. Uh... <laughs> it, it turned out that I actually ended up using that. I, I launched a school newspaper. I, I remembered this as I was, as I was thinking about this question. I, I launched a school newspaper and I used that calligraphy to write the masthead of our school newspaper. So it did come in handy in the end. So that's kind of what I was like in my primary school years, you know, just kind of took that in my stride, was like, yeah, I'm a smart kid. This is fine. Got to high school and suddenly realized that I hadn't had to try at any point throughout my primary school years to achieve what I'd achieved and was thrown into this, you know, bigger pool of fish and I had to work hard and I'd never done that before and was just completely overwhelmed and intimidated and high school for me ended up being just a place where I focused more on trying to be cool, which is intensely lame looking back at it. All I wanted to be was accepted and have lots of friends. And, you know, I got in so much trouble for doing the silliest things. Like I think on one day I got suspended for smoking during detention that I'd gotten for smoking. It was just ridiculous. I, yeah, really, really kind of went down a path where academically things didn't mean that much to me. And I didn't really get out of that until I left school. That's those high school years. It feels like a totally different person to me when I look back on her now, but yeah, childhood in a nutshell. (laughs) We wanted to ask you about your time in high school because I think we've heard you speak about it being quite a pivotal time in your life, particularly because you learnt a lot about grief and loss. I heard you speak about losing a couple of friends who were quite close to you, one in particular in a motorbike accident. When we talk about high school and that time, how do you feel about that grief and that loss that you experienced? Yeah, I, it's it's interesting because at the time... I didn't really realise that that wasn't a typical experience of people. I think by that time in my life I'd I'd had a lot of loss in my life and it's only talking to people as an adult where it's like, no, we we didn't have that many people pass away in our school that we all got extra credit for our HSC. That is not normal. That is not usual. But it was really a time where a lot of friendships were really solidified and forged and we all – came together to support each other really well. That's a lot of people that I went to school with are still incredibly close today. It was it was tough. It was a it was a hard time. I mean I remember our drama room was just constantly being turned into a room where people could go to get counseling and to and to grieve with each other. And yeah, I I didn't realise that that wasn't typical, but mm. absolutely it's it's clearly not. <laughs> clearly not. Mm. Yeah. Ray, 
At the age of 18, the course of your life changed. You fell pregnant. What are your memories of that time? Take us back to the day that you found out that you were in fact pregnant. Oh gosh. Well, I felt sick (laughs) immediately as in morning sickness. And I went, oh, this is not normal. Something that I I haven't really spoken about a lot, but is probably important if I'm going to, if I'm going to tell this story to you now, is that when I fell pregnant with my son, I'd actually experienced a miscarriage a, a couple of months earlier. And that was twins that I had miscarried. And it was quite early on in the pregnancy and I was still deciding what to do. I, I did not know what to do. I was in a panic and in some ways that decision was made for me and I, as a result of that, it was quite traumatised by that event. I was quite traumatised by how that went about. My experience at the hospital was was quite horrific. Uh, the, the medical staff that I dealt with at the time were extremely unsympathetic and just the the memories connected with that were just awful. And the idea of doing anything other than carrying through with the pregnancy when I found out I was pregnant with my son was just inconceivable to me. I I couldn't imagine doing anything at that time, probably because I was still dealing with the trauma from the miscarriage. So it was just a no-brainer for me. I just went, okay, cool. I'm not doing anything else with my life at this point in time. I was working in hospitality. Yeah, I I didn't have any bigger kind of aspirations or goals at that time. I feel like they'd kind of, it's, it's hard to find a way to phrase this, but when I was growing up and when I was in high school, I wanted to be an actor or I wanted to, you look at the yearbook, it's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And like, I want to be a hairdresser. I want to be a real estate agent. I'm like, I want to be rich and famous. That was my thing. <laughs> And I wanted to be on stage and I wanted to be a movie star and and all those things. And by the time I'd finished school, I was just completely convinced that that was unattainable for me. It was just something that was total pipe dream, never going to happen. Just go work at the pub. That's that's what you're going to do. That's that's all you're going to do. That's all you can do. So when I fell pregnant with my son, I was just like, well, cool, this is it then. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a mum and I'm going to commit to doing this and I'm going to do the absolute best job I possibly can. It's not unusual for women in our family to have babies young. So it wasn't a thing where I was terrified to tell my parents or anything like that. Mum had me when she was 18. So it was more just a great, we're going to have a, we're going to have a baby. It's going to be amazing. And he completely changed my life for the better. Totally, mm. completely, 100%. He is my constant motivation to achieve everything I can because I needed to show that I could look after this child and this baby and, and be proud of the job that I was doing. I want to ask you about how you navigate miscarriage as an 18-year-old. Is that something that you have processed much later in life kind of as you've been raising your son? Oh, good question. <laughs> I I don't know if I have fully processed it, to be honest. I think sometimes you just jump from trauma to trauma in your life and you don't really look back on it and dissect it. You just deal with the biggest one that's impacting on you at that particular point in time. I'm sure something to do with it might come up in the future and I'll have to deal with it then. But it took me a long time to tell my son about it, which is why I'm comfortable to to talk about it now. I spoke with him about it recently, actually, and I think that helped him grasp the understanding of how he came to be and how our relationship 
was really forged. Ray, we know that health outcomes for Aboriginal women in Australia are much, much worse, particularly during pregnancy and childbirth compared to non-Aboriginal women. I want to know how you feel when you discuss that trauma that you experienced with the healthcare system, feeling like all of these negative stereotypes were being put onto you and feeling like you were being judged every time you interacted with a nurse or a doctor. How do you process that, knowing that so many Aboriginal women die during childbirth, absolutely astronomical rates compared to non-Aboriginal women? How do you process that? How do you feel about that? It's horrific. It, it genuinely is. And, yeah, I have a lot of privilege, as in I am you know, white presenting. I, you know, if, if unless I tell a healthcare professional that I'm Aboriginal or they look at my chart, they don't assume that I am. They, they assume that I'm white and I have to tell them. But my treatment as soon as that is revealed is profoundly different. And like that is, it's disgusting. It's, it's frankly disgusting. I, when I was going to my health checks when I was pregnant with my son, I was asked every single visit, how many cigarettes have you had today? How much have you had to drink? What drugs have you taken? And every single time I had to say, I'm not smoking, I'm not drinking, I don't trade drugs, I'm pregnant. Like Every single time. And it was the same people I was talking to every single week. It's like they pull out a different checklist for Aboriginal women and instead of judging them as the person that's sitting before them, they're judged on what kind of stereotype they've perceived or what kind of stereotype the the healthcare system has perceived. And I don't know a whole lot about the healthcare system and how it works, but I only know about my experiences. And I've seen the shift happen when you're speaking to a healthcare professional and Obviously, it's not all of them. I don't want to say that all the doctors and nurses are just all awful to Aboriginal women because that's obviously not the case. And We have a lot of fantastic Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women working within the healthcare system to help change these things. But I didn't deserve that treatment and I didn't deserve to be denied pain relief while I was giving birth. I didn't deserve to have a whole bunch of students just walk into the room where I was giving birth, where I was completely exposed and I did not know they were coming in there. And, you know, my mum ripped a a sheet out of one of the cupboards and laid it over me and yelled at them all to get out. And the nurse turned around and yelled at her for taking a sheet that was sanitised that she was covering me up with. And and, just all of these experiences that, I know wouldn't have happened if they didn't know I was Aboriginal. It's horrible. On Mother's Day in 2017, you spoke to SBS about a hashtag and movement that had just taken off, which was hashtag Indigenous mums to recognise Aboriginality on Mother's Day. And you told the publication, I was a young mum, I was a young single mum, I was a young single Aboriginal mum. There are a lot of stereotypes with that. How do you raise your child among all of those stereotypes? How do you kind of push through and keep your head down and kind of try to live your life when all of that is put on you? I think there's a lot of intergenerational trauma that comes with being an Aboriginal mum. There is a inherent fear passed down that you may have your children taken away from you at any given moment. And it's not an 
unbased fear. It's it's a fear based in reality and based in fact and based in what happens every single day. Even now, you know, people assume that stolen generations are a thing of the past, but they're absolutely not. They're a, they're a, it's a thing that's happening in more numbers today than ever before. So I kept journals, really detailed daily journals of every day of my son's life until he turned 18. Just everything that we did, extracurricular activities, trips to the dentist, you know, trips to the doctor, you know, any kind of holidays I took him for off to you know, where we were living, uh, you know, how we were living, what kind of money I was earning, just anything that could be presented that I felt could be presented to a court if I was ever in a situation where I had to prove that I was a good enough mum to keep my son. And that's not something that anyone taught me to do. Like no one ever sat me down and said to me, you need to document this. You, this is what needs to happen. It's just something that I knew I had to do because the risk was there. And it's a thing that I didn't, <laughs> again, I didn't realise was something that all mums didn't experience. That's, I, pu- I put out a, a tweet you know, when my son turned 18 to be like, woohoo, we made it. You know, I can burn all the journals now. And everyone's like, no, no, keep the journals. They're a wonderful record of your son's childhood. And I'm like, no, they're not. <laughs> they're, they're my trauma <laughs> written, written, written down. And and I didn't want to keep them. I still haven't burnt them. I would like to, but I still haven't. They're still sitting in a box. I think that's something I have to deal with. Ray, I think there's this stigma that comes with being a young mum. And as you said, there's another whole layer on top, the stigma of being a young Aboriginal single mother. And despite all of that, you say that your son completely changed your life for the better and he was a beacon of light for you that put you on a whole new course. Talk to us about the joy and the the kind of effervescence for life that you found through motherhood. Oh my gosh. It was just there was it was like a, a switch went off in my brain. And there was this moment where I was so determined to be the best mum that I possibly could that when I looked down at him and he was getting a little bit older and I knew he was at an age where you know, I was going to start to tell him all the things that he could achieve if he put his mind to it and, you know, that nothing could stop him and nothing could get in his way, I realised that I hadn't set that example myself because as soon as I hit high school, everything just kind of went downhill and I just went, eh, this is it, this is my life. And I had you know, so many people around me just telling me, well, you know, this is it, you know, you're you're just a mum now and not there's anything wrong with being just a mum, but, you know, I had other goals that I wanted to achieve in my life when I was little and I felt like I needed to just give those up. There was, there was no way I could go for that now. But if I was going to tell him that he could be anything he wanted to be, I needed to set that example. I needed to be a role model for him. So I started hustling, like hardcore hustling every Thing I could possibly do. I, I looked back and went, what did I want to do when I was a kid? I wanted to be rich and famous. I wanted to be a movie star. I wanted to be on the stage. And I remember going to the service station that was like a you know, five-minute walk from where I was staying with him, pop him in the pram, go up there. And they had like this computer there where you could put some coins in and access the internet. And this isn't because it was so long ago. This is just because that's what I had access to. I couldn't even walk to a local library at that point. Put coins in the internet and I would go on forums to try to find acting work 
to try to find an extras agency, to try to find anything that I could possibly do. And that kind of started me on this weird career path that I'm on now. And every step of the way is a success for me. So every time I have succeeded in you know, getting an audition or getting an agent or landing a role or any of those sorts of things early on, that was me proving to myself and to my son that we could do it. Look, I did it. You can do it. Coming up after the break, Ray talks about what it's like navigating your 20s and pursuing a career all while raising a little boy. But first, a word from today's sponsor. Mish, pardon the over-exaggeration, but I do feel like I've spent so much of my life searching for a pair of classic black leather boots. Recently, though, I've been wearing Joe Mercer's Lover High Ankle ones that have this gorgeous soft-pointed toe, and I absolutely adore them. They look so good on you and comfy as well, which is important for winter shoes. I have been having a bit of a loafers moment, so Joe Mercer's Celeste Low Hill loafers are my go-to as of late. They're suede and pair so well with outfits just to give them that little edge, just to jazz them up a bit. And they do jazz them up too. I am also keeping a lookout for their upcoming summer collection because I am always on the hunt for good quality sandals. Have you actually seen their Espadrille Clume wedge? I've got my eye on the black version. It's got this white strip at the bottom of the wedge. It's just like a little bit funky. Oh, that sounds right up my alley. Guys, until the 30th of August, the team over at Joe Mercer are offering Shameless listeners 25% off your purchase by using the code SHAMELESS at checkout. That's right. You guys get 25% off and it's valid in stores as well. To use that discount code online, head to joemercer.com that's J-O-Mercer with a C.com.au to make an order and it will be delivered to your door by their carbon neutral partner, Shippet. Thank you so much to Joe Mercer for making this episode of Shameless Possible. I think it's hard enough in your 20s trying to work out who the fuck you are and who you want to be. <laughs> But how, yes. how do you do that when you're a young mum and a lot of people just tie your identity up with your child? Like how did you kind of get to know who you were and who you wanted to be? Oh, gosh, I don't think I found out really who I was until I hit my 30s, to be honest. I spent a long time just you know, saying yes to things, you know, travelling through life. I've done all sorts of ridiculous jobs. I have had so many life experiences and that's part of it. You know, I want to experience as many things as I possibly can in this lifetime. You know, you can help more people that way if you can understand where they're coming from. I, yeah, I don't think, I, I think I'm still discovering who I am in a way. I think it's a lifelong journey to find out who you are. I don't think any 20-year-old knows who they are. That's ridiculous. <laughs> but I, I think for me, you know, my identity really was just very firmly tied up in in motherhood but also in forging that career I think what I put out into the public was a really deliberate thing as well at that point I wanted to make sure that I came across as being me who who I was a genuine person an honest person who was hardworking and reliable and good to work with So I think I just based it on those sort of values and and moved forward from there. 
To keep pushing and to keep moving forward, I wonder if this is okay for us to suggest, but there must have been a really incredible network of like women around you and a really incredible sisterhood raising you up. Who was in that strong circle of women? Who were the women in your life that really helped you get from there to here? Absolutely. Uh, my nan, my mom, my aunties, I would not be where I am today without them. And they each offered something different to my life. And you know, my nan introduced me to most of the geeky stuff in my life. She was a big comic fan. She loved the Phantom and we'd sit around and read comics together and drink cups of tea. She also taught me how to live while being extremely frugal. Um, <laughs> she, my, my nan and my pa and you know, my extended family grew up in housing commission in Mount Druitt and you know, being frugal and, and getting by on very little was a very important you know, thing. It's a, it's a very important lesson that I've learned in my life and the things that you can do and achieve even when you don't have a whole lot. I, I think it was really inspirational to me. I'm, you know, my, my nan was on an age pension and still went on cruises every year. I don't know how she did it. I look back right now. I'm like, how did you afford these cruises? But in reality, I know she like stayed down like on the bottom level of the boat and you know, she ate porridge for weeks on end to be able to save up to afford it. And she was an incredible knitter and she would knit jumpers that would be sold in like the tourist shops in Circular Quay for hundreds of dollars and she would be paid for that. So, she, you know, she managed to turn her hobbies into a bit of a side business, a bit of a side hustle to be able to do the things that she wanted in her life. You know, my mum, obviously, an incredible inspiration to me, an incredibly strong, funny woman who has always been there to support me, has has always shown me the value of hard work as well. I can't remember a time in my life where my mum and dad didn't work incredibly hard to be able to provide for us. Yeah, and then yeah, obviously the the wider group of aunties. When I look back on on the early years and I look back on how I had to budget to survive during the time when when my son was a toddler and I would be left with like five dollars for a whole fortnight once my essential bills had been paid and mum would drop around with a box of fruit and veggies and be like, oh, yeah, no, there was a market stall. There was just this guy <laughs> on, on the side of the road and, you know, I, I got all this for like $2.50. There you go. And <laughs> I totally believed it at the time and she did it because she knew I was proud and she knew that I wanted to be the one providing. I didn't want handouts and I didn't want you know, anyone else stepping in and taking that place. But looking back now, it was only a couple of years ago that I thought about that again and went, hang on a minute, mum, <laughs> mum, you went and bought like $50 worth of fruit and veg <laughs> and just gave it to me on a regular basis. So yeah, it was amazing really to have the support that I did. Couldn't have done it without them. They sound like incredible people around you. And I want to they know, are. when you were going to these auditions and you were kind of trying to crack into the acting world, how did you also find your way into journalism? Oh, yeah. yeah. It doesn't really seem to make sense. It's like, hang on a minute, but you're the science and technology editor at NITV now. How are you, why are you talking about acting? Um, it's all really weirdly related, and I didn't think it would be. I, I think it's important to note that I didn't study at university. I Everything I know now I know from being on the job. And 
it's been a very slow incremental path to get to where I am to be able to develop those skills outside of a formal education pathway, but it was absolutely possible. I, yeah, started acting, started doing extra work, started doing theatre and you know, short films and a couple of feature films. I ended up, I used to apply a lot for jobs on a internet site that is quite well known for ripping people off if they want to do any acting work. So I don't recommend it and I won't say their name. But one of the gigs that came up on there was a presenting role for a video game TV show that was on Fox 8. And I just went, oh, sweet. I've got this. Nailed it. I've been playing games my whole life. I love games. I know how to be in front of a camera now. I've got all that training. And I rocked up and I did the audition and I nailed it and I got the job. And to be on that show, I needed to write all my own stuff. I needed to review the games myself. I needed to script and and interview people. So a lot of that writing work that I did working in television led to writing elsewhere. So I started writing for print publications and for online publications and eventually I scored a full-time job at Tech Life magazine where I was their lifestyle editor. So lifestyle editor for, for a tech magazine is basically <laughs> social, social media. And, you know, <laughs> I was actually like, what is lifestyle for a tech yeah, magazine? Right? right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, you know, anything technology-based that is also lifestyle. So social media, uh, consumer technology products. So, you know, headphones or laptops or phones, you know, how to do things online. So that sort of thing. And I used to do videos for them and I used to write for them. And I got made redundant because everyone does eventually mm. in a media role. The, the magazine was bought out and with it came out the envelopes. If you got a yellow envelope, you still had a job. It was a little bit thicker with a new contract. And if you got a white envelope, you had lost your job and you needed to go home immediately. And at that point in time, it was just my son and I. I'd moved back to Sydney and I just went into a panic where what am I going to do I've I've been made redundant I need to support my child I now live in the most expensive city I will need to move back out home with my parents and you know go back into hospitality which I'd worked in for 15 years I didn't want to do that anymore like I'd come so far and I ended up getting really really lucky and I scored a job as a commercial editor at Alua Media, which mm. looked after Business Insider, Pop Sugar, as well as Lifehacker, Gizmodo, and Kotaku at the time. And I was, I made the entire commercial editorial process. So I created the process within that company for advertorials and sponsored content. And I executed every single piece of sponsored content across all of those sites in all of their voices for a period of time until I just went, I cannot do this anymore. I am losing my mind in this job. It's just too much. And yeah, timing worked out that I was able to jump into a journalist role at Gizmodo at that time. Mm. And yeah, then became editor, was there for a couple of years, jumped over to Junkie, uh, established a a gaming vertical and introduced tech content on that site and now back over at NITV. So that's kind of my path. And what a path it is. But Ray, hearing that path, 
made me want to ask a question and I don't mean to make you uncomfortable with this question, but I think in general, more women need to speak about what makes them good at what they do. I think there's a tendency for women, and I include myself in this, to pretend that everything just kind of was thrown together and it happened and it was a whole bunch of luck. And if Jamila Rizvi is listening to this, who wrote the book, Not Just Lucky, she'd be tearing her hair out. But I want to go against that in honour of Jam and her work as well. Talk to us, what makes you good at what you do? Because you don't just start in one job at a tech magazine and work your way up and grind your way up to be editor of one of the biggest millennial publications in the country. What makes you good at what you do? I care about what I do. I'm involved in the culture of the topics that I'm writing about. I know them inside out. I'm completely curious about how everything works. I care about the quality of my work a lot. I take feedback. I take feedback a lot. That's something that I learned back when I was acting. When someone gives you notes, you just take them and you use them to improve. If you think that you are already the best that you can possibly be at something, you are wrong. 100%. You can always get better. I think being good to work with is really, really important. And that does not mean in any way, shape or form that you do not call out any kind of harassment or any kind of terrible things that are happening within your workplace. That is not what I mean by that at all. Being someone that people like being around. Honestly, I think it's just a lot of hard work. It's it's a lot of hard work and it's never giving up. I think that's really what it boils down to. Ray, you mentioned being one of the few women in tech reporting and I wanted to ask you what the experience has been like as being one of the few women in this industry, in a very male-dominated industry. What's that been like? It is incredibly male-dominated. I think one of the best examples that I can give that solidifies how male-dominated it is is that the Australian games industry at the moment is still 83% male. And most of those are white men and you know, don't identify as being from any kind of underrepresented group whatsoever. And, you know, it just creates an environment that isn't exactly welcoming to anyone that doesn't fit that mould. I experienced a lot of gatekeeping when I started, a lot of you know, questioning from other men that were in journalism and in the industry itself as well, that look of surprise that I still get now when I talk about loving games and, and tech and science. They're like, oh, you really? You don't look like a gamer. I'm like, what does a gamer look like? It's just someone that picks up and plays a video game. You, you don't have to look a certain way. This is ridiculous. But you know, there's, there's wider reasons as to why the industry went this way and why it ended up this way, because it didn't start that way. You know, the, the first games were made and played equally by men and women. So there was a whole whole marketing nightmare that happened in the 80s that ended up with an industry that we have now that is so overwhelmingly male-dominated that women are harassed routinely in their daily mm. existence. It was a bit lonely, to be honest, but I looked around and you know, there were a handful of other women that were working in games media. I think there were five of us in Australia at that time. And we kind of pulled together and bonded together and we would spot each other at events and go, hey, and head over and, and you know, have a bit of a chat and, and help each other out. And that really helped me a lot to know that I wasn't mm-hmm. alone. And I think it also helped us all realise that even though we were being completely pit against each other as competition, we absolutely were not competition. We all had something different to offer. We all 
you know, we we wrote or presented for completely different outlets with completely different audiences, and we could work together to be stronger in this environment. And eventually most of the men came around as well and just kind of accepted us, but still being confronted at events, being like, oh, yeah, you're you're a gamer, huh? So what did you think of the ending of this movie, of this game, rather? And I'm like, oh, stop it. Really? Are we doing this? <laughs> Like, like a pop quiz. It, it is. It's like a pop quiz. It's like, oh, so you're a real gamer. Huh? Um, you know, name all the Final Fantasy games. You know, stop it. Oh, stop God. It. It's so immature. It's so ridiculously immature. But really it was one of the experiences that led me to really want to make sure that other women didn't feel that way when they were coming into the industry, that they felt like Mm. there was a really strong, solid group of women that they could turn to that would absolutely support them because we're told that we won't get support from other women in male-dominated industries, that they're our competition, that we can't turn to them. And I never, ever wanted to make someone feel that way. Mm. Ray, say there's someone listening to this right now who is a woman who wants to be in STEM or in tech and gaming in particular, tell them about the most rewarding moment of your career so far. I know that's a really difficult question, but is there something that you look back on where you're like, that I did some good there or I contributed to something that's bigger than just me? So as much as I love being a writer and I love being a creator and putting my own content out there, I love being an editor and I love being a mentor even more. So I am most proud when I have a writer come to me that's like, oh, you know, I really want to get into tech and games. I I don't know if my writing is good enough. I don't know what to do. And I'm in a position where I can help them, where I can help shape their work and I can publish them. And they might come from a background that is, you know, even more underrepresented than just, you know, cisgendered women within these industries. And to be able to have their voices out there as well is genuinely the most rewarding thing to me, to be able to look at those articles, look at the impact that they're having and to know that I've helped contribute to the industry being a more diverse and welcoming place to other people. I know that that's not specific, <laughs> but but that's it for me. I think that if I can replace myself by the time I retire with you know, 10 other underrepresented people in games and tech journalism, then I am happy. I am done. And I'll just go live in my house in the mountains with my dog and my fireplace and be a proofreader for the rest of my life. That's it. I want to come full circle right now because at the start of our interview today, you said in the middle of this lockdown and this pandemic, it's really forced you to kind of think back on your life and all of the things that you've kind of been through and how you've got to where you are now. What does success look like to you with all of that in mind and what have you been thinking about when your mind has gone to those places in the last few months? Yeah, it's it's funny how that sort of shifts and changes when you're faced with something that you know, forces you to be so insular. Yeah, it's it's difficult because you know, normally I'd be going out and, and doing mentoring sessions with people and sitting down and having a cuppa and we can't really do that safely at the moment. So you know, I, I don't get those little nuggets of success from that. For me, in my, in my life I always had a goal which was to take my mum on her first overseas holiday and that would be personal success for me. And I did that last year. We, we did a road trip around New Zealand. So I've succeeded in my personal life. That's it. I'm done. I'm good. But look, I I think success for me is still 
you know, being able to experience as many things as I possibly can in my life so that I have I have a base to be able to help other people from and I have a, a wider understanding of other people and to somehow be able to integrate that into what I do for a living. Mm. That's that's success for me and I know that's a bit abstract. It's not really a I'm not a five year plan girl. I you know, my job didn't exist five years ago. My job now didn't exist until I had it. So I can't really draw out a map and say this is where I'm gonna be. I just take those opportunities as they come. And I think as long as I'm living honestly and I'm living in a way that benefits others, not just myself, then then I'm happy. Ray, thank you for joining us. I honestly have so enjoyed every word that has left your mouth today I've been hanging on every answer you've given us so thank you we are genuinely so grateful you're so generous with your insights and we are very very excited to share this with our audience thank you so much for having me honestly Mm -hmm. it's been I've been so nervous leading up to this I just thought oh my gosh you have such incredible smart resilient beautiful women on this show and I love Mm. listening to every single interview that you do so for you to consider me among them I'm an incredible company and I'm truly honored so thank you you fit that mold very very well so we are so stoked to have had you on Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Ray Johnston. If you'd love more from Ray, I do not blame you. You can find her on Instagram at Ray Johnston or subscribe to her incredible podcast, Take It Black, which is in all good podcast feeds. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll also genuinely enjoy our interviews with other women in the media like Jamila Rizvi and Brooke Boney. I will pop both links to those episodes in our show notes. As for us, well, the number one way to support Shameless is to subscribe to our show. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Zara and I would so appreciate you clicking that big purple subscribe button. That is one of the main ways we find new listeners every week. It helps us in the charts. And if you're on Spotify, click follow. That helps us in the charts over there. That is all from us. We'll be back in your ears on Monday with a wrap in the week that was in pop culture. Bye, guys.